If you want to turn in your Bibles, we're going to be in Psalm 62 today. The title of today's message is The Lofty Place. I want to begin by asking a couple of questions here. How many people here have been falsely accused of something? Anybody here been falsely accused of something? I know that I have. How many people here have felt as if the whole world was ganging up on you? Anybody ever have that feeling that it just seems like everything in your life is working against you? I remember back when I was in sixth grade, I wasn't one of the popular kids. I was kind of short for my age. I wasn't very athletic at that point. I was also a welfare kid, which means I often wore the same clothes a lot because we were uh, pretty poor at that point in our lives. And the welfare kids actually had a separate lunch line we went to because our lunches were free, so we got a different lunch than everybody else. So everybody knew who the welfare kids were. I was also very shy, awkward, in a, um, very introverted, and whenever I tried to be cool, like the cool kids, it just came off really kind of forced and awkward, and you know everybody would stop talking and just stare at me like, why are you even saying anything? Well, one day, one of the teachers went down, or my teacher went down to the office to make copies, and they made this, she made the mistake of leaving sixth graders alone. And one of those cool kids who sat right behind me climbed up on his desk and acted like he was surfing. He was like kind of doing his desk surfing, and everybody was like, yay, you know, for this kid, and, you know, he was being cool. And then he decided to jump up and down on his desk. And so he's jumping up and down on his desk, and sooner or later, he's a big kid, desk comes crashing to the ground. And took out his chair, I mean, just made this gigantic crash. Teacher from across the hall comes running over, you know, and, and she's like, what the, you know, she's pretty much the Lord of the Flies going on in the, the classroom here where the kids have just taken over and they're just running around screaming and there's a desk in shambles and a chair in shambles and, and she's like, shut up, what's going on? And without missing a beat, the cool kid points at me and says, John Oscar did it. Because he was the cool kid, the entire classroom then said John Oscar did it. And here I am, I'm just standing in the corner watching what's going on, trying not to get in the way, and they're pointing at me as being the one that did it. And then they came up with this idea that some girl over here came up with an idea that said, yeah, I don't know what happened, but, but John just started running around the classroom chasing people with a chair. And, and, and then he started smashing the desk when he couldn't catch anybody. And, you know, the, the stories, you know, kids, the stories just start flying. Pretty soon, you know, I'm, I'm probably running around with a knife in my, in my teeth or something. And they're just making up these stories and making up this story. And so, of course, I end up in the principal's office. And, of course, my dad has to come and get me. So my dad comes in and sits down in this principal's office. And my principal's explaining, you know, this is what happened and everything. And my dad looked at me and said, did you do it? I said, I had nothing to do with it. It was a kid behind me. They're lying. And the principal looks at me and says, you expect me to believe that 32 other kids came up with the same story and are lying about you? And I just looked at him and said, yeah, that's exactly what happened. And so my dad started asking the principal questions, you know, like, so how did he manage to run around a classroom for like 10 minutes chasing a bunch of sixth graders and nobody made a noise? And he started, ask, he started tearing the, the thing apart until finally I was off the hook. But how many people here have known the feeling of being completely piled on and completely falsely accused? I mean, how many people here have felt the world shift a little and it seems like all the light has vanished? 
How many people here have just had that kind of change in their life and you've just been left in a cloud of despair? And how many of us can say that we are still waiting for the promise of God in our life? Or maybe that promise came at one point and just when we got our hands on it, it has disappeared. Well, there's a man in the Bible that knows exactly what you feel like. King David, who wrote this psalm that we're going to study this morning. God gave him a promise that he would be king over all of Israel. And it took 20 years from the time of the promise to the time of the fulfillment, but God came through. But unfortunately, David had some issues. And they had some issues, he had some issues in his life that he didn't deal with. And it caused his sons to grow up with a very entitled mindset. They were the rich kids. They were the king's kids. They could do no wrong. They were the untouchable people within David's kingdom. Even to the point where they thought they could get away with rape and murder. And nothing would happen to them because of who they were in that kingdom. And it got so bad in David's house that his son Absalom led a coup d'etat and tried to take the kingdom away from David. And now he's running for his life. Absalom's rebelled. He's gotten all of his counselors to go against David. And David is running for his life because in those times, if there is a coup, the person who was, was in charge has to die. So David is literally running from his life from his son. And as he lived through all of that, he wrote this psalm. Truly, my soul finds rest in God. My salvation comes from Him. Truly, He is my rock and my salvation. He is my fortress. I will never be shaken. How long will you assault me? Would all of you throw me down this leaning wall, this tottering fence? Surely, you, they intended to topple me from my lofty place. They take delight in lies. With their mouths they bless, but in their hearts they curse. Yes, my soul, find rest in God. My hope comes from Him. Truly, He is my rock and my salvation. He is my fortress. I will not be shaken. My salvation and my honor depend on God. He is my mighty rock. He is my refuge. Trust in Him at all times, you people. Pour out your hearts to Him, for God is our refuge. And before we pray for, this ver for what we're about to study this morning, I just have an observation. And that is just, wow. We just reviewed the situation that, that David was in when he wrote this psalm, that he's running from his life, running from the son who he loves. He's, he, the promise that God has given him has been stolen from him through betrayal. But as he runs, he praises God. He acknowledges God for who he is. And I think we can learn something from that this morning. So let's pray. Father God, we thank you, Lord. I thank you for your word that addresses every possible situation that we can go through in life. And the situation that David is going through this morning is probably a situation that some of us here are dealing with, either now or will deal with in the future. So I ask, Father, that your word become alive to us this morning, that your word be a salve that heals wounds, that your word be a knife that cuts away things that, that are against you and things that, that don't reflect your character in our lives. 
And I ask that the heart of Jesus will just be made more perfect in us as we go through this message. And I ask this in your name. Amen. There's some principles I want to go through this morning. And the first principle is we have to understand where the believer of Jesus Christ resides. Max Lucado tells a story of growing up playing high school football in Texas. Now, high school football in Texas is kind of like deer hunting in Wisconsin. It's the unofficial second religion. It is taken very, very seriously. Texas high school football teams resemble professional football teams in the numbers of players. They could have 50 to 100 players on this team. They, they have professional coaches, full-time full paid coaches, and not just the head coach, like all their coaches are full-time. And the gameplay they have is, is much above anything you're going to see in this area. And although his team was often the area and the state champion, his role on that team was often found keeping the benches warm for those players on the field. They'd come off the field, he'd stand up and give them a nice warm bench to sit on. And one of the things he worried, that he learned about being a bench warmer is that you got to see a different perspective of the game. You got to see what the coaches saw. You got to see how coaches made decisions about gameplay or substitutions. Another thing that Max noticed is that right after they came out from halftime, the head coach would disappear. And he thought that was very strange because the, the assistant coach would all of a sudden take over play calling and, and personnel decisions. And Max, sitting on the bench, really had nothing better to do than start to dream and wonder what the heck happened to the coach. I mean, was he kidnapped by the opposing team and we had to go rescue him? I mean, was he hungry? Did he need a hot dog and he ran into the stands to, to get something to eat? I mean, did he stay in the locker room for some reason? I mean, where is the head coach? And finally, Max had the courage to ask one of the special teams coaches where the head coach kept going during halftime, um, right after halftime. And with a jerk of the head toward the stands, the assistant coach said, well, he's up there in the press box. And Max was stunned. He's, he's thinking, you know, why would the coach be giving interviews during the third quarter of the game? I mean, this is a time you come out of the locker room with a, an adjusted plan and you go and attack, you know, the team in a different way and in a more effective way. And the assistant coach explained that the coach was not up there giving interviews. In fact, he, he shut reporters out. He was up there watching the game from a different perspective. He said, Max, when you're in the game as a coach, you see the same thing your players do. You have the exact same perspective that they do. But you can't see everything. You can't see what the opposing team is thinking. You can't see where your guys need to adjust. So you need that higher perspective in order to make adjustments and win this game. And that is what he is up there doing. And Max's coach showed a lot of wisdom in winning football games. And that same wisdom is needed by us in this thing we, in this thing we call life. And if you have given your heart to Jesus, you have the advantage of a completely new perspective on everything. And we have to climb up into the lap of God and see things from God's perspective instead of the perspective, that, that narrow perspective we see here on earth. One of my favorite sayings, you've probably heard me say it a lot, is that truth is reality as seen through the eyes of God. 
That perspective is yours. God's perspective is yours if you seek it. And it's that truth that enabled David to write this song while going through such a hard time. And that brings us to our next principle from this psalm. David said, we are in a lofty place. We have that ability to see reality as through God's eyes. I mean, isn't that incredible? That we can see through God's eyes exactly what is going on in our world? When I first moved here, I probably was to La Crosse a hundred times transporting patients to Gunderson or to the Mayo hospitals there. And I'd seen the, the, the city from street level. I'd seen you know, where the college was. I saw the hospital was. I saw where the, the uh, riverfront was. I got to see all these different things. But then one day, Tammy and I went to Granddad's Bluff. And I got to see the city from over 600 feet in the air. And not only the city, but I got to see deep into Minnesota. I got to see the Mississippi River stretching to the north and to the south. And I got to see the, the city from a much better perspective. I filled up the SD card on my phone with pictures. And having the ability to see the big picture is everything in life. I mean, why do you think people spend so much money on horoscopes? or psychics, or tarot cards, even witchcraft, because they want to prove their ability to see into the unseen world so they can think they might have a better grasp on this reality that we live in today. But Christian, you have that ability. You already have that ability. And you have that ability through reading the Word of God until that Word starts to read you. You have that ability through spending time with your God in prayer until He fills you to the point that you see what He sees. You have that ability through fellowshipping with your church family. Let an iron sharpen iron while fulfilling the mission that God has personally assigned each and every one of you. And that will cement your vision in that lofty place. And you will see God for who He is and you will see what He sees. And the second principle about that lofty place is that that lofty place is in a fortress. Do you know in ancient times when they would build a castle or a fortress, what was the first thing they built? The, wa the watchtower. They built the watchtower. There's something about building a fortress that all, if you had an enemy in the area, if they saw walls going up, they would immediately attack. Because they knew that once that fortress was completed, they would never be able to get in there without years and years and years of, of, of putting that, that castle or that fortress into siege. They knew that there was no way of, of getting in there once those walls came up. And that is why we need to guard our perspective closely. We need to guard our vision closely. One of the enemy's principal attacks is to make you change your view of God off of God's perspective and onto the world's or onto the enemy's perspective. And once Satan does that, he's got you. <coughs> That's why David asked, How long will you assault me? Would all of you throw me down this leaning wall, this tottering fence? Surely they intend to topple me from my lofty place. They delight with lies. With their mouths they bless, but in their hearts they curse. And that's why the Bible says, guard your heart, because it is a wellspring of life. 
And after receiving Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, is there any other principle that I could teach as a pastor? It would be that one, to guard your heart. Your heart is a principal attack zone of the enemy. Spiritually speaking, it's what controls what your eye sees, what your ears hear, what you choose to think, and what you choose to do when no one else is looking. That's why you need to have these kind of walls around your heart. Because the enemy is doing everything he can to make sure those walls have gaps, to make sure those walls have secret doors that he can enter into and that he can exploit. And if he can do that, then he can change your perspective from what God wants to show you from what he wants to show you. And it changes your whole idea about what truth and reality really is. The third principle is that God's perspective is our truth, which is our refuge. And that's why guarding this lofty place is, as your fortress is so important. It's your resting place. It's your peace. It's your comfort. It's your strength. God wants you to exist right there. Because being in this lofty place means His favor is upon you. And His presence is powerfully within you. And then you will have nothing to fear. You will have no want. You will have no needs because God Himself becomes your refuge. And nothing can assail you when you're in that refuge. And those are the principles that this Psalm of David is teaching us. Now let's look at some of the practical applications of these principles in our lives. So the application. Were you aware, I don't know if you guys were aware, we had an election recently. I don't know if anybody knows that, anybody was aware of it. I mean, right... How could you not know? The constant robocalls, the, the ads that once showed fast food, beer, and cars changed to whatever dirt somebody could dig up on one of the candidates, either real or unreal. Social media was filled up with stories that most of them completely false, and yet people posted them as truth on both sides of the aisle. And this election was probably one of the dirtiest and divisive elections in modern history with the lies, the extremely personal attacks of vitriol that we saw really challenged our ability to show the love of Jesus to one another through all the screaming that was going on around us. And it was a challenge, a real big challenge, even for me, to maintain a godly perspective on this whole mess. But at the same time, this also showed me why proper godly perspective is key. You see, I read to the end of this book. I've read the end. And I have a little bit of news for you. As much as I love this country, America isn't there. There's no mention of American prophetic literature. But then again, neither is Great Britain. Neither is Iraq or Canada, Saudi Arabia or Russia, Spain, France, Uganda, South Africa, Brazil, Argentina, the Philippines, Japan, China, Korea, not even Wisconsin, even though this is just heaven south that we live in. In the end, it's all one government. And by the way, that government is not elected. So you'll never see an election like this when Christ comes. 
That government will not be a democracy, it will be a theocracy. It will be a God-led government. And it's ruled by the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And His name is Jesus. And therefore, as much as I want to pray for my current country to have godly leaders, as much as I, as much as I want to see America come back to Jesus, I pray even more that God's kingdom come, that His will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I say, Maranatha, Jesus, come quickly, Lord. I want to see your government reign on this earth. And we pray like this because we have a different viewpoint on this earth than the world does. Again, we have read the end of that book. And instead of making noise and screaming and carrying on about the evils of this candidate or that candidate, maybe we should focus on making Jesus great in America again. Because America will never be great again unless America becomes good again. And America can never become good again as long as it turns its back on its creator, as long as it turns its back on the gospel of Jesus Christ that founded it. And that should be our perspective. That's why that first application is this. Whoever is in power in this or any other country we are safe in God's arms no matter what. Because we come from a different country once you surrender your heart to Jesus Christ. And placing your hope in any human government is ultimately going to disappoint you and is very foolish. Imagine, I mean, trying to build up a human government would be like imagining your life is 12 hours long. And you spend that whole 12 hours at the ocean on an ocean beach building this magnificent sandcastle. It's the best sandcastle that has ever been created. People come from all over the place to take pictures of this sandcastle, look at this sandcastle, but then the tide comes in. And all that work is destroyed. That's what trusting in human political systems is like. It is like building that house upon the sand, ignoring the fact that sooner or later that tide is going to come in. So I would just tell you, don't get so wound up in this stuff. For what profit a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul? And I admit it, I'm a news junkie too. Tammy will tell you, she's like, oh gosh, you're watching that again? And I admit, I've spent hours of my life over this past year arguing with people on social media over issues that ultimately are stupid because they never attack or touch the base of the true argument that is going on. And the base of any argument over any of this kind of thing is this. We need Jesus. Jesus, when he is brought to bear, brings all arguments to an end. Because he is the way, he is the truth, and he is the light. You know, this, this whole political thing reminded me when I was in the army. We received some briefings and training on how to extract information out of POWs. Now, I'm not talking about torture, breaking fingers, and all that kind of stuff. But there are some, some non-violent ways of extracting information. And one of the tactics that can be used is depriving them of rest and sleep. Essentially, you lock them in a cell and you blast music in there at 80 to 90 decibels of some really annoying song. I mean, it could just be somebody singing in a sing-song voice, happy birthday for hours. 
I mean, just something like that that just drives them crazy, takes away their ability to rest, and, and sooner or later, they get so mentally exhausted that they give up the information that you want, um, need to get from them. That's what this election cycle has been like. It's been this noise that has just wearied us to the point that we have taken our perspective off of God and we lose focus on what's really important. But that's why we need to stop and regain God's perspective again. Because if we are where we are supposed to be in our relationship with Jesus, then we should be existing in God's very presence. And that presence is called Jehovah Shalom. It's one of the names of God, the God who is peace. The God of peace who is our refuge from all this noise that exists around us. And that's why our prayer and devotional life is so important. Everybody has heard it said, garbage in and garbage out. What you feed on the most, that is what you will become. And if you feed on this world and all of its fears, you're going to become like the world and become afraid. But if you dine at the table of God, you become like Jesus and carry shalom with you, the peace of God. And that is extremely attractive to this world who craves for that kind of peace. And that is a principle and application of having God's perspective. Now let's look at a few practical ways of living this as we prepare to close. The practical, practice point number one. We bring God's views to bear on every situation. In other words, take every thought captive and make it obedient to Christ. And this is a discipline. And that's why you need to know this book right here. It's not a dust collector. It's not something you put on the shelf just to collect dust. It is something that we, that we live on. It's our survival manual to get us from this life onto the next. We need to know it. We need to love it. We need to do it. And someday we get to see the Word of God in its perfection when we gaze upon the face of Jesus. The practice point number two is that when the, even when the enemy tries to topple us, realize you are safe in God's arms. And that peace, as I said, will be very compelling to those who don't have it. And people, I'm not going to lie to you, people may initially hate you if you don't wade into that sewer of screaming vitriol with you or with them. They may have this sense of superiority over them and tell you that, well, if you can't defend what you believe in, then you don't really believe in it. Or, you know, they'll make fun of you, they'll call you names. But I ask you to remember a few truths from the Word of God. Proverbs 26 says, Do not answer a fool according to his folly, or you yourself will be just like him. The next verse says, Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. And the word fool in the Old Testament is not meant so much as an insult like we would use it today. It's a description of a person who is morally bereft or lacking in their ability to control their base emotions, and one who is not wise. And these, these two proverbs seem contradictory, but the intent of these scriptures is to point out that the argument is not yours to make. It's God's problem. We are to show love and compassion as we present the truth to people. And truth should never, ever have to shout. 
Let me say that again. Truth never needs to shout. It never needs to raise its voice. If a person is ready to receive that truth, it will be received no matter if you whisper it or shout it. We're there to represent Jesus. And sometimes that might mean walking away from a fight in order to preserve a relationship. If you were on social media, you shouldn't be defriending people because of who they voted for. You shouldn't be walking away from a person at work or in your family because they may have voted for somebody different than you. Even if it means making yourself look like the person who lost the argument. Our focus is Jesus. That person you're arguing with has a soul that Jesus desperately wants to redeem. And if we keep that perspective, then it won't matter who wins or loses an argument because our focus will be correct. And that is the condition of their soul and the fact that they need Jesus. Tammy, if you and Jennifer want to come back up. The final way that we can practice this lofty perspective is to understand that all of this only comes when we exist with God on His heights, on His level. It exists when we commune with God in His refuge. And it exists when we allow the infilling of the Holy Spirit who brings the God of peace to fill us, who brings the God of peace to overtake us, and who leads us beside those still waters.